of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast will contain descriptions of acts of violence or of a sexual nature and are for people that are 18 years or older. Heed my warning, people. I do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show. These facts I'm retelling were presented to me by the victims of the crime or the perpetrators who committed the crimes. My descriptions of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes. If you are going to get offended, turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And I'm your host, Woody Overton. Today we're going to be continuing the second part of our series, Murder Me Now. Before we get started, I'm going to give some shout-outs. They're much due, and congratulations and thanks to the people that I'm going to mention. First of all, each and every one of you that listen to the podcast, I appreciate it. The response is just awesome, y'all. Today, we actually passed 10,000 downloads this morning. And that's only been four weeks since we launched our first episode. So we have listeners now from 49 countries throughout the world. And each and every one of you are amazing. And I love you. And I appreciate it. And we appreciate it at Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Just want to thank you. And we hope that you'll continue to listen. And we hope that we can continue to entertain you. I also want to remind everybody about our fan page, which was started on Facebook. Now, we have a regular Real Life Real Crime Facebook page, but the fan page is Real Life Real Crime Podcast Friends and Fans Crew. And that page, y'all, is really interesting, and we have the best group of moderators in the world. They take care of the page, but if you're not a member... I would suggest that you send us an invite and we'll get you approved. And the page contains a lot of interesting materials, bonus materials, if you will, on each episode. And it includes press releases, court documents, photographs of the perps, etc. And send us the request. We'll get you approved. The interaction on the page between the fans is amazing. Three weeks ago... We had 
just over three weeks ago, we had three members. Now we have 346 at the time that I'm recording this. So it's a lot of cool stuff and very interesting. Send us a request and we will get you hooked up. Okay, and also I want to talk real quick about our patron fans and support group, if you will. Yeah, we started patron as a way to help monetize the podcast perspective of our fans are requesting more episodes, more information. And one of our fans suggested that a way to help do that was by going with patron. So we did it, and we have 11 fans that are supporting us already through Patreon, and I want to give them a shout-out. So on Patreon, for a $5 pledge a month, Tier 1 grants you your name on our website as a contributor, access to at least one mini-episode a month, which I'll be doing. And some of those are going to be really cool, y'all. I'm going to do some funny stories, true stories that happen on some of them, and some of them will be sad, but... It'll be worth it. Also, it allows you participation in the Ask Me Anything session once a month. In Tier 1, you'll get to submit questions, and I'll answer them. We did that once before, and it was a, it was a really good success. And Tier 1 allows you access to archived episodes and to any updates to those episodes. And 15% off any merchandise from the Real Life Real Crime store, which will be opening this weekend. Now, Tier 2, for $10 a month, this tier gets you all the benefits of Tier 1, plus you get a personal shout-out on at least one regular episode a month of Real Life Real Crime. You get access to any live Ask Me Anything monthly sessions, and you get one bonus full episode of Real Life Real Crime per month, y'all, which I'm going to pick I'm going to try to do crimes on most episodes that tie into the other episodes that we've already done, and that'll become a little bit clearer as it goes on. And it gives you 30% off the real-life, real-crime store merchandise. Finally, Tier 3. It's kind of a ha-ha, but for $300 a month support, this tier grants you access to Tier 1 and 2, plus one item of your choosing from the Real Life Real Crime store shipped to you per month. And I will personally travel to you once a year, at which time we'll record an Ask Me Anything episode where you get to ask and create all of the questions you want. And we'll share at least one never heard before story with you. And you can choose one episode topic per year and be listed as the episode's assistant executive producer. And again, this is a way that y'all support helps free up some time so we can do these extra things. And uh, we really appreciate everybody that's done it. So let's go through the names again real quick because I, I know I said I would only do it once a month in Tier 2 to start. But for right now, while it's a lower number, I want to show my appreciation. So we'll start with Miss Kyle Clark Hess. We really appreciate you, Kyle, and Miss Kyle. It's awesome. Thank you. And of course, Miss Yvette Williams. Thank you, Miss Yvette. And then Courtney, we appreciate you and your subscription. And Miss Stacy Henderson. Thank you, Stacy. And Jenny White. Thank you. We appreciate you, Jenny. Miss Mary Alice Cafirio. I'm hoping again, Miss Mary Alice, you never let me know if I'm saying your name right. And then Amy Derrick. Thanks, Amy. We, you know we appreciate you. And Shannon Hayes. Thank you, Miss Shannon. We 
really, really, really appreciate your contribution. And Tanya Truel, my longtime friend, her and her husband, Brad, we appreciate y'all. And Christine Hernandez, Miss Christine, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Miss mm-hmm. Cassie Wallace, we appreciate each and every one of y'all. You're great and super fans, if you will. Y'all, when you go to our private group page, you'll see these People are always engaged in the conversations and adding stuff to the website. But thank y'all so much. And if you will give us a, a look on Patreon, and we appreciate you, and we appreciate you taking the time to do that. And it really means a lot. So let's get started with the second part of Murder Me Now. So when I left you last, Gerald Bordelon had confessed to the rape and murder of Courtney LeBlanc and had led the investigators to her body, which they found almost naked by the Amy River on the East Baton Rouge side, East Baton Rouge Parish side of the river. Gerald Bordelon was booked in for first-degree murder. He had numerous prior sex convictions and was out on parole when he met Courtney's mom who was told that he was a sex offender a violent sex offender by the parole officers and they lived in Mississippi and Courtney had two sisters they were twins uh, that were older than her that did not live with the mother Jennifer Locke was her maiden name Um, they didn't live together full time but one of the the twins had reported that Gerald Bordelon uh, molested her, and it, it went to a grand jury twice, and the the twin never showed up for free the grand jury, so they did indict him. But then young Courtney reported that Gerald Bordelon molested her, and when she reported it, she said that it happened while she was sleeping, or, or at least when it started to happen, she pretended to be asleep, and it happened in her bed, and he did the sexual acts, the rape, if you will, molestation, however you want to define it, I don't care, And that, but he did it to the sweet baby girl. And that, when that broke through, instead of staying and, and being involved in the investigation or letting the investigation run its course, Jennifer, the mom, splits from Gerald Bordelon, says she does, and moves from Mississippi to Livingston Parish, where I was working for the sheriff's office at the time. Now, I said it in the previous episode, I believe she moved to Livingston Parish strictly to get it uh, away from the investigation. Of course, I can't prove that, but the uh, she was still seeing Bordelon, Gerald Jimmy Bordelon, when she moved to Livingston, and we know this for a fact because he electrocuted himself while doing some work on their residence, and Courtney had to call 911, and she had to give him mouth-to-mouth to to keep him alive until the ambulance got there. So we know they were together, and I think the mother was simply using that as a ploy to appease the family because now two of her three daughters have made accusations against borderline and it's just sad so he gets indicted in and the grand jury indicts him and he's arrested and he's locked up 
and he is placed in the Livingston Parish Jail. Now, the Livingston Parish Jail is in the town of Livingston. It's about a quarter of a mile off of Highway 63, and at the time, it wasn't. There were no houses directly. I would say within the line of sight of the jail. Now you have to remember, and I've told you in other episodes, the Livingston Parish at the time was was the fastest growing parish in the state of Louisiana, and just like our courthouse where the sheriff's office was was located was over, you know, bust overflowing and busting at the seams, and the courthouse was too small, for, et cetera. Well, the jail was old and outdated and small also and now y'all they have all the you know the biggest buildings new courthouses and new sheriff's office and new jail and all everything state of the art but back then it was a little bit archaic if you will and so i happen to describe the jail team when you pull up it's a long uh, one-story building at the far right hand side is a gate an automatic gate where the police or prison transports or sheriff's deputies pull up to, to that gate and have to call in to the jail to have the gate open so they can bring inmates around the back and then the gate closes and then they get them out the vehicle and you bring them through the back door when you come into the back door there's what we call a sally port or a man trap and in the man trap is where if you have a duty weapon on you lock it up in the box while you still have your bad guy and handcuffs etc and you're looking through a glass wall and there's a hallway but directly across the hallway is the control room for the jail and to the right of that if you step into the hallway to the right is a door and it opens into a walkway back into where the males are housed now the walkway is enclosed by just regular wire fencing and outside of that, on the right-hand side is where you park your car when you bring the inmates in. On the left-hand side is the recreation yard. But the only thing that separates that walkway from those two areas is that chain-link fence. And the the outer perimeter of the jail is secured by chain-link fence with some concertina wire at the top. And concertina wire is, is simply wire that has razors attached to it. It's circled in circle formation, like a you know, it's circle formation place on top. And if you go through it, it's, it's supposed to cut you up pretty good, it's just like you see in all the movies. But when you walk into the jail, you're looking at the control room, and you say, okay, I have to book somebody. So you take them to the left, and then you make an immediate right, and there's a hallway where the booking room is the first room on the left. But on your right-hand side, there's four holding cells. Now, these cells could be used to house inmates for, like, if they were busy booking a bunch of people and they had, you know, it takes a while to book somebody in. The, the deputy has to come in and fill out the booking sheet and then do uh, a probable cause written statement. And then they turn it over to the jail. And then the jail deputies have to go through their process and run them through the APHIS, the fingerprint machine. And, I mean, it just takes a while. Take their, if they're going to be, if they get a bond or not, they give them their phone call and all that stuff. But this, with this one little tiny room served all of that, the first room on the left, just past the control room. And directly across from that room's door were four holding cells. Now, those cells also acted as admin 
seg cells or administrative segregation cells. If there was an inmate who couldn't be locked up with the rest of the inmates because of his charges, or if there was an inmate who was threatened to commit suicide, et cetera, then they put them up there so they could keep an eye on them. And the, um, and so Gerald Bordelon gets locked up and of course he can't be put in the general population because he is a chomo. That's what they call him in, in the prison, a chomo, a child molester. And even prisoners have morals when it comes to raping kids, much less raping and killing kids. If you're a child molester and you go in and they know about it and they get their hands on you, they're going to beat the shit out of you at the very least. But more than likely, well, if you're a regular child molester, they'll probably beat the shit out of you and just and rape you and use you up every day. But if you're a child molester who killed a child, then they're going to kill you. You get somebody in there that's looking at life without the possibility of parole anyway. They have nothing to lose and they, they gain status amongst their peers for killing you. Gerald Bordelon naturally could not be housed in the general population. So they put him in a cell that if you're sitting at the booking desk and you look out the booking room door diagonally to your left, you could see Gerald Bordelon's cell door. Now, the cell doors were not made of bars like they are in the movie. It's a solid steel door with a window, a small square window at the top. And then the only other feature on the door is a trap door um, about halfway down, which is used to, you know, when you open it, it's used to pass in food or to cuff them up uh, um, before they come out of the cell. And they would leave Gerald Bordelon's open the, and he, you know, it's, He could see everything that was going on in the hallway. It was like entertainment for him. I mean, if he, if he had been a problem inmate, uh, they wouldn't have left it open, et cetera. They would have locked him up. Like I said, those cells were generally used uh, for booking process and admin seg, administrative segregation, or people who were raising hell or fighting staff, they would lock them in there, or suicide watch, or chomos or child molesters people who need to be on protective custody but every time i would go in to book someone i would sit at the desk and go through the routine of asking them all the questions on the form etc and i would always look to the left and what i see gerald borderline's face is pressed in that open tray slot like i said he would have to get on his knees to be able to look out and so he's sitting there and and over time i arrested a lot of people y'all when I was on in uniform patrol, I was very proactive police, and I liked to chase the dopers and the, and the bad guys. When, when I wasn't catching calls, I was out hunting people to arrest, right? People with warrants, I'd get a list of warrants, et cetera, and go get them. So anyway, I'm bringing people in, booking them, and he's always there just looking at me. And I knew who he was, and, and I knew that he was a psychopath, and knowing more about psychopaths than most people do, somehow— he started up a, a conversation with me just in general. It may have been, hey, sir, how are you doing one day? And then it grew. And then over time, every time I'd come in, we'd, we'd talk for a few minutes. And once I got rid of my whoever it was I was booking and, and put them in a holding cell, and I would sit down to write my probable cause sheet, he, he would engage me in conversation. Hey, Mr. Overton, how are you doing, doing today? And things like that. And we talked 
him being from or, or his parents, family being from Gloucester, Mississippi, that's just about 15, 20 minutes away from the town that I grew up in and different things. Like I said, it wasn't all at one time. I, I know what he was doing. He was trying to groom me. He asked about, did I have kids at one point? And I told him no, that I didn't, which was a lie, but I wasn't going to have him masturbating of the fantasy of my kids, right? And But I knew what he was getting at, but at the same time, I engaged because I enjoy the criminal mind and and the information. And when we talked about his case briefly, you know, he would say, oh, no, 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 uh-uh. I didn't, I didn't do it. I'm taking the blame for it. He said, but I didn't do it. And that's it. But so he was, he was a regular occurrence. Every time I would go in, he would be there. Very, very nice, very well spoken. But this is the same guy that got out of prison several times before for the good behavior and playing the staff, et cetera. I knew what I was dealing with, but I played along with him much as much for my entertainment as for his. October 18, 2003. It was a Saturday. I had gotten off shift on Friday morning at 6 a.m. and gone to my hunting property with my friend and fellow deputy, Reese Holden. And the property was about an hour from Livingston Parish, and we're right close to the Mississippi line, not far from where they found him in Gloucester in the cemetery that night. Anyway, so Reese and I went up, and we were doing food plots and working on things, getting ready for deer season on Friday, and we spent Friday night, and then Saturday we were working again, and we went to town to get something to eat. And we were sitting in a restaurant, and it's a small, small town, Clinton, Louisiana, and there's not even a red light to this day. There's still not a stoplight there. But we were sitting in a small restaurant, and my pager goes off, and Reese's pager goes off like two seconds later. And it's it, the message is said, 1019, the jail, 1018, which means get to the jail as quickly as possible. It means it's an emergency situation. And then another page goes out instantly. It says 1021, the radio room. 1021 means give us a call. So Reese called him. He was sitting across, I'll never forget, he was sitting across the table from me, called, and he got Tammy Forbes, one of the dispatchers on the phone, and she said, you've got to come in. Gerald Borderline and John Priest have escaped. And Reese said, what? He said, you're joking. And I mean, Tammy was a very good, dear friend of ours. She's deceased now. And Reese just thought she was kidding, right, playing with us. And he hung up on her. And then, and he told me, he said, she said, borderline in priest escape. I said, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, that's the two worst inmates we have. And then another page went out. And so I called Tammy's cell phone, and she answered, and she said, I'm not, I'm not shitting. Y'all got to get up here. They really did escape. Everybody's being called in, the whole sheriff's department. And we jet it there man it was an hour away we probably did it in 30 minutes and we arrive on scene and god and everybody is there they're setting up a perimeter and what happened was it was visitation day and gerald borderline's sister was there to visit him but he was put in that walkway i told you about if you come through the back door through the sally port or the man trap when you and you're looking at the control room you open that door to the right there's a door that closes then there's a fenced in a walkway that goes back to the men's tiers or, or pods, whatever you want to call them. And Gerald Bordelon was given like 
maybe an hour, 30 minutes to an hour out of his cell every day in that little area. But the jail staff was supposed to have somebody to watch him. And now there was another inmate who was locked in one of the front holding cells. But his reason for being locked up there was different than Gerald Bordelon's. He was in for murder also, a violent, vicious murder, which I'm going to do episode on this month for our patron members. But John Priest was up there because he was violent. I mean, the, the exact opposite of the borderline. He wasn't passive, but he was violent with staff. He was violent with everybody. Said so they had to lock him up there and take everything away from him. But anyway, some Preston Temple was the jail supervisor that day. And now keep in mind, the jail was always short-staffed. And it was a visitation day. And they still had to give these guys their time out. They didn't outside of the cell. So... Preston, the supervisor, had someone take them and put them on the walkway together, borderline and priest. And there was a cart, a gray cart that they used to push laundry and stuff back between the the tiers and or the cell blocks, whatever you want to call it. And supposedly there was a pair of pliers on the cart, and John Priest had gotten the pliers unbeknownst to the staff. Well, when the staff puts them out there, they're running visitation and all that, and plus getting ready to serve lunch and their short staff. They put them out there, and they didn't they didn't have anybody watching them. And Priest, however, got the pliers. And like I said, there's a regular chain-link fence that enclosed this walkway. And, hell, the only thing holding the chain-link fence to the post is a little twist of wire. And so what they did was they twisted off the wire at the bottom. I mean, the control room is right there. If you look out of the control room to the left, you could see that walkway, and evidently no one was looking because they twisted off the bottom wires and slid underneath the fence, ran across the rec yard, recreational yard, and the maintenance building for the jail was located in the backside of that yard and some genius left a ladder out and they got the ladder and they put it up over the fence over to Constantina wire and they escaped and that's it. I mean, we were there and it was on, right? I mean, uh, uh, Gerald Bordelon knew he was looking at the death penalty and John priest, like, I don't want to share too much on it now, but he was, he was a bad dude. And so the, the biggest fear in an escape is that these people are going to get out and kidnap somebody or harm somebody else when they should have been in your custody. So we set up big perimeter and call in everybody, state police, all the local police departments, called in the Department of Corrections chase team at, um, from actually the closest one was from Dixon Correctional Institute in Jackson, Louisiana. And they brought their chase team with their dogs. And all their chase team does is train every day to track guys that escape. That They actually have an officer that will run across the field, run and hide. And the dogs think it's a game. The bloodhounds do. And they, and they track them, just like in the movies. Anyway, so they came in. They called in uh, helicopters, uh, FLIR systems, which is forward, infrared, whatever the acronym is. But it, it's... We could see hot spots in the dark. But the probability of these two actually getting out and really being a, a danger to society was high. So, therefore, everybody that could, every surrounding agency came out and helped. And everybody, it didn't matter whether you were a clerk in the sheriff's office or 
a detective or whatever, you were out there and you were on perimeter and you stayed there. It's the way that it was. So probably the largest manhunt that I've ever been a part of was taking place. And I wasn't set out on a perimeter. The perimeter, y'all, they is a large circle where you close off the roads and the neighborhoods and everything. And so you try to contain them. You figure they can only have gone so far on foot in X amount of time. So we, we felt that we had a pretty good perimeter set up and more and more people were showing up all the time. And this went all through the night, helicopters overhead and people were, were naturally were scared to death. The ones who lived inside the perimeter and we were getting 911 calls in all the time of people seeing things or hearing things in the yard or their dog was barking. And, of course, it was all over the media that these two had escaped. And so we would have to go respond to those calls and check the areas. And it just was a big deal. But the Bordelon didn't even make it for 24 hours. We found him the next morning, not even a quarter of a mile away, hiding behind a convenience store. It was a straight shot on that street from the jail to the main highway. Now, he crossed the main highway and went behind a convenience store, and he hid and slept. He said he slept, but somebody saw him that morning uh, behind there, and we were able to get him back in custody. And when they were bringing him in, he said that he was kind of scratched up and stuff, but he said that he just wanted to be able to talk to his sister face-to-face and tell her some things that he couldn't tell her through the glass at the jail that was monitored on the phone system. But he was back in custody, and I'll tell you more about John Priest on a a later episode. He went right back into his cell, right, and awaited his trial process. And I would continue to talk to him when I brought people in to book him. And like I said, he was extremely intelligent doesn't mean he's formally educated but that fits in the profile of a preferential offender right there they generally their iqs are high and he was almost to the point of being charming so some months go by and the next year comes in in early 2004 i was promoted to the detective and the first day that i went to the detective's office reported for duty i stayed and did whatever made it through the first day well when everybody left i now have my own keys to the detective office and i'm of course interested in murders and cold cases so i go into the back room of the detective office now at that time it was split where you would walk in and like i told you in episode one there's a detective's about i think four or five desks in the front office including tina staffords who was the secretary then my desk was in the back office. You had to walk through that front office and then go into through a double set of doors into the back office. And then the back office were four more desks, I think, maybe five, where more detectives sat. And I had the very back corner desk. Now, also in that room were two large filing cabinets. And on them, they had murder and cold case. One of them contained the current murder cases and one of them contained cold case files. And that's what interests me most, right? So I I started looking at them, but at the cold cases first and just thumbing through them, seeing how many there were. And later on, I would come to solve a couple of them and we'll get in that in future episodes. 
But I also was interested, I had been, I wanted to read the Gerald Bordelon file. I wanted to read the exact, see everything, put it in perspective in my mind. Now, I took the file out, and it's thick. It's a big one, right? Because the FBI developed questionnaires, et cetera, to give to people to fill out, to go through and see what type of suspect they would be or if they should be considered as a suspect. And then you had the flyers and the police reports and the the coroner's report. But when I was digging through it, I found a long letter that was written by Gerald Bordelon to his family. Now, this is where it gets rough, y'all. If you're sensitive, you need to just turn it off. I started to read the letter, and it just blew my mind. And I'm going to paraphrase it for you because naturally it's been, what, uh, 15 years, 14, 15 years, but parts of it stick out in my mind or the overall theme of it sticks out in my mind like it was yesterday. And so Gerald wrote his family, and he says, hey, I'm writing this so you know I want to explain to you how I got where I am and that I'm sorry. He talked about meeting Courtney's mom, Jennifer, and that they madly fell in love. And he said, but from the beginning, when they started their sexual relationship, that Jennifer, the mom, would talk in a little girl's voice while they were having sex. And he he said he didn't think anything about it at first or whatever, but as they had sex more often, she became more vocal. She started to call him daddy in a little girl's voice. And then they talked about it in between sex acts, and she told him that she wanted to role play and that she wanted Gerald to play her daddy. And that's what got her off, right? And, and I mean, this is literally in his letter. And so he described that every time they would have sex, she would really revert into the little girl, and he would play daddy. They would act out rape and that, that the role play was daddy raping daughter at a very young age. And he said this went on for some time and they talked about it and it's just what they did. But he said that one night when they had gone to bed and they started to have intercourse and do foreplay and she was doing the voice, he stated that she took him by the hand and let him, she said, come on, I have a surprise for you. It's like, what? What are you talking about? And she said, come on, I have a present for you. I want to give you something. And so he followed her down the hall and they go into Courtney's room. And he said that Courtney was sleeping in the bed. And Jennifer, the mom, tells him, I want you to have her. And he's like, what do you mean? She's like, I want you to have her sexually. She's my gift to you. And he was like, you're telling me you want me to have sex with her? She said, yes, I want you to have sex with her. She's my gift to you. I love you so much. She's my present to you. I want you to fuck her. I want you to take her virginity, and I want to watch. And he said that he got into bed with Courtney, and, and the mom was there with him, and that Courtney pretended to be asleep and but he knew that she was just pretending because of the way her body responded when he touched her and that the mom was involved in the t- in the touching and the act and he said that he didn't have intercourse with her at that time but that 
did things, fingering and fondling and the different things that the mom was there. And he said he knew Courtney was awake, even though she pretended to be asleep because she became aroused, etc. So he's telling his family this. And, you know, I guess you have to take it with a grain of salt. But remember, when Courtney makes her report, her cry out, she stated that Gerald Bordelon came into her room and molested her and that she pretended like she was asleep, even though she wasn't. And she was just hoping he would go away. And so she makes the cry out, and it was ignored, right? The mom, instead of letting the investigation go through and being worked, even though she was warned that he's a multiple-time convicted sex offender, she proceeds to marry him anyway, give him access to the kids, the older daughter gets molested, reports it. She continues to give him access to the kids. She doesn't leave him. Courtney reports it, and she moves to Louisiana. Like I said, I believe it was to avoid uh, or to at least hinder the investigation in Mississippi. So do I put validity in the letter? I think that personally think there's there's some parts to it that are probably true. And I know the part about the molestation is true. I don't know if the mom was in the room or not, but I know that any person who has a cop come to your house when you're first starting to date Gerald Bordelon, it's not like you're married yet or anything. They come to you and they share his different cases of what he's convicted of, the kidnapping and rapes, et cetera, and you continue to choose to develop your relationship with this guy and then ultimately marry him and give him full access. Yeah, sure. I'm sure he groomed the hell out of her. And like I told you, he's a super intelligent, super charming guy, but maybe the the mother was, was a victim herself when she was a child. Doesn't make it an, an excuse, but, and maybe borderline was a victim when he was a kid. Doesn't make it an excuse. There's millions of child abuse survivors who who grow up and don't offend against other against kids when they grow up so could have been Gerald Bordelon's just part of his defense which his defense was that the mother actually killed Courtney and that he was just taking the rap for it so she wouldn't have to but that letter it always stuck with me talk about how the mother would talk in a baby's voice and not going into all the details I mean but it was bad little girl's voice about daddy do this to me daddy do this to me and daddy and it's just bad and then for him to say that the mom led him by the hand and gave courtney to him as a sexual gift and it's pretty tough stuff so anyway i don't know if that was ever made public or not i do believe it was strictly his defense and i know that letter i've never heard of it anywhere else but i read it in the file and it was a long letter. And by, again, you have to take it with a grain of salt because in my mind, he's trying to explain to his family why he molested Courtney. I mean, his family already knows that his history, right? And But I, he's thinking long-term. He's thinking, well, you know what? I'm going to prison. I want somebody to come visit me. I'm going to want somebody to put money in my commissary account. I'm, I'm going to want somebody to be able to make phone calls to and stuff like that. So he's explaining it. But he's putting the blame on strictly 
and solely on the mother, even though he did the act of molestation at the time that he admitted to. The Even though he did the act, he's putting it all on the mom. So, But that's something that I carried with me, and especially when I would talk to him times after that through the cell door when I would go to the jail for whatever reason and talking to him. He's just big smile, blue eyes and big smiles looking through the trap door and, hey, Mr. Overton, and how you been doing, and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sitting there thinking, he's sick. Oh, yeah, I can't. I guess I could say it as an adult show, but anyway, I was just thinking, you should. Sick dirt bag, right? On October the 12th, 2003, just six days, I think, before... Gerald Bordelon escaped from the Livingston Parish Jail. Jennifer Bordelon went on trial for felony child abuse in Amy County, Mississippi. She had been charged uh, for allowing Gerald Bordelon to continue to have access to the kids after she had been told not to. And she faced up to 20 years in prison if found guilty. And they had a two-day jury trial, and it took the jury only 20 minutes to come back with a unanimous guilty verdict. Jennifer's defense wanted to put on Gerald Bordelon as a witness for Jennifer, but Judge Bruce Bennett from Livingston Parish wouldn't allow him to be transported for security reasons. All right, okay, now are you ready for the sentence, right? She gets convicted. The judge comes back for the sentencing and he has up to 20 years to give her and he gives her five years of probation five years of probation no jail time slap on the wrist now on Courtney's birthday every year Jennifer had to write a 200 word letter to Courtney to tell Courtney how she failed to protect her from Gerald Bordelon. What? That's it? And the there was outrage that the judge did that. Jennifer testified during the trials that she never knowingly allowed Gerald Bordelon, a convicted rapist, to be around her daughter unless she was present at the time. Well, we know that's a lie. And the Amy County authorities arrested Jennifer Bordelon after the investigation into Courtney's disappearance led back to Gerald. And Gerald Bordelon had been banned from having any contact with Courtney LeBlanc by Mississippi and Louisiana child protection workers. Well, Jennifer, we know that she still was seeing him because Courtney gave him mouth-to-mouth and called 911 when he was shocked at their house the week before he killed her. Brenda Brenniger, who is Gerald Bordelon's former mother-in-law and grandmother of two of Bordelon's four children, sat through the trial and says she was outraged by the judge's sentence. She said, I was happy with the verdict of the jury, and she felt vindicated to some extent from the emotional turmoil. She said, we wanted to get the conviction, but we were totally shocked and stunned with the sentence. It was a miscarriage of justice. He gave her no jail time. He basically slapped her on the wrist and didn't order her to undergo any counseling or anything. The judge totally made a mockery of the jury's decision. The jury did their job, but the judge didn't. He said he thought about it, but how much time could he have given if the jury was only out 20 minutes? Berniger 
said the testimony evidence in the case showed that Jennifer Bordelon willingly continued her relationship with Gerald Bordelon in view of his criminal past. She said, we sat through two days of testimony, most of which came from professional people. They gave evidence after evidence that Gerald had molested one of the daughters. Jennifer continued the relationship, which allowed him to remain close to the children. She did nothing to protect them from this man. The jury saw this. So that's pretty shocking, y'all. The mom walks free. You have to make your own assessment, I guess, of what you think about that. And we're going to shut it down for this part of the Gerald Bourdain, Courtney LeBlanc, Murder Me Now series. Now, next week, we're going to conclude the series. And it's just when you think it couldn't get any more interesting, it does. And we're going to conclude the series, and I'm going to tell you, Everything that happened with Gerald Bordelon up until he took his last breath. We appreciate you for listening. We love each and every one of you. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Thanks, y'all. Okay, everybody, just a little post note. I want to say thank you. Last weekend, somebody did a poll on the group site podcast we listened to on Facebook, and we said we'd give a shout-out to anybody who went and voted for us. And I think we finished, like, second, y'all. Uh, um, if we had won, they would have featured us on their page. But we really appreciate you taking the time and going to vote. And uh, it's still a good showing for us, and it proves it in our numbers, which are growing daily. So, Miss Christine Hernandez, thank you so much for going and voting. And Jillian Lanier, thank you, dear. We appreciate it. Miss Kimberly Stowers, you know, we appreciate you. And Miss Madison Babin Berthelite, thank you, Madison, for going to vote. And Miss Pamela Smith, Thank you, Miss Pamela. We really, really appreciate it. And Toma Ryder, thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time. Miss Veronica Swift, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Miss Yvette Williams, you know, we love you. And we appreciate y'all for taking the time to do that. And the numbers, uh, the, I guess you would say the proof's in the pudding, the, the numbers, y'all. Uh, we just are growing like crazy. So we really, really appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.